the Catholic Channel Sirius XM 129 presents Just Love with your host, Monsignor Kevin Sullivan, Executive Director of Catholic Charities of the Archdiocese of New York. Welcome back to Just Love. This is our weekly conversation about the church in the world, our conversation about how we view what's going on in the world through the perspective of our Catholic values and our Catholic social teaching the dignity of the human person, the sanctity of human life, the importance of family, participation in civil society, solidarity across nations, thinking about workers and the dignity of work, thinking about our environment and how we steward God's creation. All of those are the way that we like to look at what's going on in the world. So let me back up a little bit and say, so if we're looking at a particular issue, does it enhance the family or does it impede a good functioning of family? What does it do to human dignity? What does it do to human life? How is, does a particular policy issue affect nations throughout the world, not merely our own nation? Um, and if we look at issues of workers, how do our workers' rights respected? Is it a decent job? Are there safe working conditions? A variety of of issues related to work. So that's what we are looking at. What we're going to do today is, in a few minutes, I'm going to be joined by um, people from Catholic Charities in different parts of the world. Uh, I'm here in New York, as Tom is, uh, but we're going to go a little bit to the middle of the country, to Catholic Charities of Southeast Michigan, and we're going to go to Utah and Denver, and we're going to have just a little bit of a conversation about what are our various Catholic Charities agencies seeing throughout the country as we kind of come out of the pandemic, and as we kind of are emerging from this kind of two-year quasi-closed down in some ways, and as we come with new crisis, because we're a big country and things play out in different parts of the country well. So I thought it might be good for our listeners to know how three different Catholic charities agencies that are on the ground are going are responding to the needs that are that are there. So that's what we're kind of going to be doing in the you know, in the first part of our conversation in just a few moments. And then we're going to kind of, uh, you know, talk about some foreign policy issues a little bit later on with the show. Uh, We're going to be speaking about, you know, again, Ukraine, some of the Russian aggression there, and what's going on in that way with uh, Professor John Owen, who is at the University of of Virginia. So that's kind of our show. I'm glad that you are with us. I'm glad Tom has rounded up the guests that we we have today show. And so why don't we begin our roundtable conversation? And we're going to have as our 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 guests, I'm delighted that uh, Paul uh, Propson, the chief executive officer of Catholic Charities of Southeast Michigan, is joining us. Randy Chappelle, the Basic Needs Director of Catholic Community Services of Utah, and Paul Voltiero, who is the Chief Financial Officer of Catholic Charities 
of the Archdiocese of Denver. Thank all three of you for joining us on on Just Love. And uh, let me let me say thank you up front for your time. And so thanks for being with us. Very welcome. Thank you, Monsignor. Great. And um, so we're going to try this, uh, doing a little bit of a roundtable conversation. And if you talk over each other, that's my fault. That's on me, that I haven't been (laughs) properly um, uh, disciplined in doing this. But I have to say, you know, for the sake of our listeners, you know, before COVID, we used to do this in a formal studio. And to be honest, it was a lot more difficult because you only had people on the phone and was couldn't see them. Now we can actually see people, even though our listeners can't. I'm sorry, listeners, you can't zoom in, okay? We're zooming, and hopefully you can hear us well. And uh, so we're going to. So why don't we begin? Um, let's let's go from kind of. We'll begin further east, <coughs> and um, and Paul. Paul Propson, Chief Executive Officer, Catholic Charities of Southeast Michigan. Give our listeners just a little bit sense of yourself. How'd you wind up being the chief muckety-muck in Catholic Charities in Southeast Michigan? Thanks, Monsignor. Yeah, I grew up in Southeast Michigan. Okay. Um, and uh, uh, local, bo- uni- local boy makes good. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> went, went to the University of Michigan and uh, had a chance to work at a summer camp uh, for Detroit kids. And um, uh, as a camp counselor and just really fell in love with the energy that these kids had with the, um, uh, the gifts and talents they had and also with the challenges that they were facing, uh, helping pray them through and work through, uh, 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 grapple with some of their the challenges they had in life. So I did two summers of that and wanted to work in the city after. I actually went down to the organization and, uh, that, that hosted the camp and I said, I, I'd like to work here. Uh, and they said, well, you don't have anything we need. So go away, get something valuable and bring it back to Detroit. Um, I went and got my MBA. I was able to work in Chicago in community health centers. And then uh, uh, after a time, got back to Detroit, leading a community health center in, in the Detroit area. And I uh, was then able just recently, about three years ago, to join Catholic Charities here as a CEO. Great. Paul, thank you for sharing that story with us. Uh, <clears throat> Randy, Randy Chappelle, the Basic Needs Director of Catholic Community Service of Utah. Give our listeners a little bit of sense of, of where you've been and how'd you wind up where you are now. Yeah, thank you, Monsignor. So my, I don't have a story like Paul does, but uh, I was fortunate enough to have a brother-in-law that worked for Catholic Community Service of, of Utah that helped me get in the door. Uh, and then I started out in our Migration Refugee Services Program. Uh, as our medical interpreter supervisor, and then just sort of move throughout all of the programs that we offer here. And so I have a wide understanding of all the programs that we do here in in Salt Lake City. And um, last two years, been promoted to the basic needs director for CCS. Great. Randy, thank you so much. Um, Phil Voltieros, the chief financial officer, Catholic Charities in Denver. Phil? How'd you wind up uh, a mile high? Well, Monsignor, you can tell by the inflection of my voice, similar to yours, that I grew up a lot closer to you uh, than I did the Mile High City. So uh, my entire life, born, bred, and raised in Yonkers, New York, 
uh, grew up. Hey, hey, that's where I grew up too. St. Paul, uh, the Apostle Parish. So just a little to your south. I know you're yeah. just a little bit up there on Yonkers Avenue. So uh, Phil, Phil, so, you know, I think we can do this. We don't really need Paul and Randy. I mean, we got this figured <laughs> out, right? And since we're the only people in the, in the country without accents, um, you know, the rest of them got these, all these crazy <laughs> accents, not us. Monsignor, you couldn't say it better. I've always viewed it as being the hub of Western civilization right there in Yonkers, New York. So, <laughs> that might be a little stretching it, but I'll give, I'll give, I'll cut you slack. <laughs> <laughs> very good. Very good. So I, I grew up there, uh, started my career there. I, unlike, uh, our other participants here spent uh, most of my career, uh, in financial services, uh, first in New York, migrated out here in 1999 with a three to five year plan. Do the math, it's been a lot longer, <laughs> but um, rolled up my uh, commercial career in 2019, uh, had have a deep affinity for our faith and what goes on at Catholic Charities and had the great opportunity to partner again with the CEO here that I knew from a former life in uh, financial services and uh, have been the chief financial officer here for the last 12 months. So I'm the newbie on the block in terms okay. of uh, charities, but certainly with uh, with a love of what we do. So um, let me reverse order, Phil, since you have the um, have the floor. What are you seeing uh, now as we're kind of emerging from from the pandemic? What's different? What are you seeing uh, that that's going on in uh, Catholic Charities in Denver? Sure. Well, I think more than what's going on differently, I'd say it's the accentuation of what had been going on. So when you think about the Denver community and where it's been, uh, just think in terms of housing prices. Since the turn of the century, we've seen over a 200% increase in the cost of a home here. The average cost of a one bedroom is about $1,600 a month, which uses up basically 80% of somebody who's at minimum wage. So you start with a population, and I know I'm not speaking out of hand for people in New York and other parts of the country, but it is a, an area that is highly dependent on a uh, individual transportation system, not mass transit. So gas prices, food prices, housing prices, have that you know, compounding effect in an environment like us so that the people that we are uh, supporting and ministering to are having to make some incredibly difficult choices. The dollars are fixed. The dollars are disproportionate in some of those areas that they must invest in to continue to live day to day. So we're seeing that proliferate across all of our programs. Mm, okay. So, Randy, um, what's going on in, in uh, Utah? Are you actually in Salt Lake City? Yeah, I'm in Salt Lake City. So right in the heart of downtown Salt Lake City. Uh, I think people feel lost. They don't know what to do. Um, they have, like Phil said, they have decisions that they have to make. Is it, is it feeding your family? Is it paying for your rent? Is it paying other bills? Uh, I think people don't know where where to turn to or are struggling on where to turn to there's a lot of people out there that are struggling with asking for help no one wants to ask for help and so now it's the time of they have to decide on what they want to do and i think you're seeing uh effects of that when it comes to uh 
seeing more individuals facing homelessness than we ever have, uh, or more individuals facing food insecurities than we ever have uh, because of the pandemic. You know, Randy, I, past week or so, you know, I was reading something and Salt Lake City was listed as one of the five best cities in the country to live in. Um, how do you react to that? I think it's one of the, I can see it because there's, I think there's a lot of help. There's a lot of individuals that want to help. Uh, I think I, the government does a great job when it comes to resources and different things uh, in the area to, to help the community or the citizens. Um, I still think there's, we, people struggle. Um, just like every other city, you have individuals that are at uh, set incomes that can't afford uh, rising prices in groceries or, or gas or different things. And so that's where the real struggle comes to. Okay. I'm coming out to, to visit your fair city in middle of June. I was invited by um, some of the people from the Church of the Latter-day Saints who are having a conference out there in um, <clears throat> on religious freedom or something, and they asked me if I would uh, come out and participate in it. So sometime in mid-June, I'm going to have my first trip to Salt Lake uh, Salt Lake City, and um, and 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 Phil, they'll, they'll have to get used to a non-accented person out there. <laughs> sure, they will, Monsignor. Okay, so Paul, what's going on in in Southeast Michigan as we're emerging from the uh, you know from the pandemic? Yeah, I think uh, Phil Phil did well to to highlight uh, housing you know, gas prices and food, and, and Randy mentioned the food, you know, as well. I think that those are um, uh, much more expensive, much more difficult to come by. Um, for example, we uh, we participated in the resettlement of um, uh, of folks from Afghanistan recently. Hey, Paul, for the sake of our listeners and for the sake of me, who can be geographically challenged, Southeast Michigan, is that it's Lansing, Detroit. Detroit. It's Detroit. It's Detroit. Yeah, Detroit and the surrounding counties. Mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah. No, we don't go to Lansing. Um, uh, we, we would never go there. No, no, not Columbus. <laughs> not Lansing. Okay. Um, so, uh, uh, but but uh, yeah, the cost of food uh, really has gone up, and that has increased demand at our food pantry. Uh, particularly, we help uh, homebound seniors. That was a program we started during the pandemic, actually, was um, delivering food to seniors' homes. Um, oftentimes, our folks were the only uh, company that, uh, that a, a homebound senior would, would have in a week or in a month. And it was a great, um, a great ministry that we were happy to begin and we've maintained, partly because now the cost of food is so great that... Um, even if the senior could get out, they couldn't afford it. Uh, so I was Paul, mentioning. Mm -hmm. Go ahead. No, please, please. Keep yeah, I, was, going. I was also mentioning the Afghan uh, uh, refugees right. coming here. The, the difficulty finding housing. It was very, uh, very difficult for uh, the whole community uh, helping um, uh, bring these folks into new homes. Obviously, apartments. Almost, uh, most often, although some of these families are seven, eight, nine uh, people to a family that needed a, a small house. And uh, the housing crisis is severe here. 
and it was just made more difficult during um, you know, the escalating rents that have been going on uh, through through the latest wave of the pandemic. Go ahead, Monsignor, I cut you off. So, well, the question I was going to ask you, and I think I've heard it over and over again, is I, mean, I think that there was a jobs report, I think, today, which said we added, you know, for the 26-something straight month, you know, hundreds of thousands of jobs. Are you... How are you doing in terms of being able to hire people to do the yeah. work? Yeah, yeah, that, that was on my list. Okay, you know, I'm sorry. You, you don't think about the fact that charities who, like us, who employ therapists, case managers, um, drivers, uh, all of a sudden our folks are worth twice as much somewhere else. <laughs> and when they go, um, that's, that's the end of the service for the person who was relying on us until we can replace it. Um, so there's disruptions in service delivery at charities like ours, particularly in behavioral health. Behavioral health, uh, there again, the pandemic amped up people's awareness, you know, of maybe a crisis in their family or it created a crisis in their family or in their personal lives. Um, youth particularly, uh, although it's affected everybody, but youth particularly, um, uh, tremendous demand for behavioral health and we are getting creative with, you know, how we create a pipeline from uh, universities into, uh, you know, the graduates to become, uh, to get their, their first year or two of supervised um, uh, counseling done at our, at our place. So we've kind of had to move down one level in terms of retaining our best people who, who can also now train the next generation as our strategy to, to keep therapists providing therapy here at Catholic Charities. Mm. Randy, how are you doing in terms of being able to hire people to do the programs that you're, you have in, uh, in Utah? So just like Paul, I think, I think all organizations and even the nonprofit side of things is struggling when it comes to employment. Obviously, we, have to, we want to try to retain our, our uh, staff, but it's also costing us a lot more money when it comes to doing stuff like that. Um, they're worth it, but when you're living off of state grants or federal grants or, or private donations, it's harder to hit that budget or make that budget work uh, for the rising costs uh, and for just to keep our uh, staff members. And uh, what's, what really hurts or what it really does is it hurts the population that we serve. You know, if, we don't have staff there like Paul. We can't run some of the services. Mental health services is something that's super important to the population we serve when it comes to individuals facing homelessness. And there's not a many therapists out there where we can send our clients to to receive the help. And so it's, it's a struggle. Um, we've done well in being able to retain our staff but a couple of the open positions we've had, it's taken six months to a year to find someone. Yeah. So Phil, let me, let me ask a similar question to you, but in a little bit of a different, different way. You're the CFO of, of Catholic Charities in, in Denver. What's your fiscal year? When's, when's your fiscal June, year begin? June 30. Okay, so, you, so you're probably right in the middle of budgeting for next year. Indeed. What are you in your head? Are you estimating 
where your personnel costs are going to go in light of the demand? Yeah, yes, absolutely. I think, you know, a key point made um, by both Paul and Randy is that the value of our employees has always been extremely high. Okay, they've been made higher because of the way in which the population and jobs are opening up. But a key thing to remember, uh, as well as we've got heroes on the front lines. So we're not just competing against dollars, we're competing against type of job. We can't ask our folks to come and participate virtually in their job. They must be in our shelters, with our housing facilities, with our people each and every day. So as we, again, work with the limited resources that we have, we have to measure that with what we're, being, what we're asking them to do. Our shelter folks are in the shelters every day. So it is a combination of how we position these jobs as well as the dollars that we pay. But to your point, Monsignor, pressures on labor are everywhere, uh, particularly when you think about where we are in the, in the region, in the country, uh, there is a, a hyper sense of, of what those costs are. Well, Phil, Phil, let me go to a next step because I can speak about our experience here in New York is while all of us have those people who need to be on the front lines every day, organizations like Catholic Charities do have many people like yourself, like Paul, like me, like Randy, who are, we don't have to be on the front lines. Mm -hmm. And so I'll just share with you some of our experiences. Um, you know, some of those staff are saying, well, why do I have to come in? I can do my job remotely. And then you're kind of saying, well, yeah, you're right. You can do it somewhat remotely. But so you don't have to come in. But these other guys have to come in. Are you experiencing any of that little bit of tension? Well, I think that there's, I think that that tension has existed throughout time when there's things that certain parts of the population are asked to do that others are not. Right. I will say here, what we focused on when we came back, which was about a year ago now, right. that we focused on the value of community. So we do have a hybrid model, uh, one where we are, at, for those administrative and back office are here on average three days a week. Um, we have consolidated some of our administrative offices such that everybody now is coming to one central location. So our focus is on community. We recognize that there is a, a differential when it comes to, to some of what is being asked to do, but it is really our continued attempt to build community, to have events where more and more people come into the office and do things in addition to their day-to-day -day job. In the finance area, we've been running a, a three five, a, or sorry, three two for um, you know since I came on board. So um, I like to see people in the office. I think we as a as a culture are three dimensional, not two, uh, and we need uh, people to work with in that space. So, um, but to your point, there are challenges. I'd like to address that too, Monsignor. I think um, this is an opportunity for us as Catholic Charities agencies and. We've, we've tried to uh, benefit from it as much as possible, which is, uh, while we maybe can't compete as much on pay, although we do everything we can to increase pay, and we have, we can, uh, we can look at flexibility. And so where we can do that, um, we have. And so, for example, with the refugee case management staff or with the foster care uh, case management staff, their, their schedules were always going to be sometime in the evening, sometime on a weekend. 
and yet they were still kind of locked into the nine to five or eight thirty to five workday yeah. on top of that. Well, now it's more like, okay, this is your caseload. This is your job. You be here when you need to be here. You can be somewhere else when you need to be somewhere else. And we, we, we pivoted that way. And I think it's led to more job satisfaction. And how have you, how's the challenge turned up in terms of kind of supervision? Well, fortunately, I think we have great people. And um, unfortunately, the people we serve have great needs. So if, if, if their needs aren't being met, um, that kind of bubbles up pretty quick right. anyway. And uh, uh, people stay pretty well in touch with, uh, you know, obviously the email, the phone, the text. You can't escape the workplace in a lot of ways. Yeah. So I guess it's having supervisors who have a good relationship, keep in touch and are, are on, on top of what work is getting done in their office. Randy, what are the challenges you're you're seeing in terms of remote and site, different jobs and different job classifications? So when the pandemic first started, we had some staff working from home just for the health and safety reasons of themselves. And we saw backlash from it, from staff, you know, being, well, why am I here if this person's not here type of a thing. And uh, But that, that happened the first two or three months. But since then, uh, we haven't had any issues of uh, staff feeling like they needed to be work, working from home. Where I'm at right right now is we have a food shelter or a food, we do food, and then we have a day center where individuals can come in. And so it's a necessity for us to be open and running uh, so clients can continue to receive services. And we don't have a lot of admin staff on site here that we have more with our Migration and Refugee Services Office, um, where they are able to work a little bit more at home than what we do uh, in the basic needs services. Uh, so, and I try to be here as, as much as I can just to support. And I know our supervisors are here on a daily basis just to make sure that we support and give that uh, needed attention to our staff. So you have you, you you three have been very very generous with your time. Before I let you go, I'm just going to ask you to kind of put your crystal ball on. And is there one particular area or one particular item that coming out of the pandemic that you see going forward? Well, that you think is most important for our Catholic charities, kind of organizations to be aware of, to focus on in light of what we learn positively, negatively. Is there one thing that kind of you focus on as this is something that really needs, needs our attention and needs our focus? Um, whoever wants to go first can go first. I'll say so, housing. How, how, develop, we're getting into developing affordable housing here in Detroit. And uh, that's, that's our one thing uh, from the pandemic that we want to make sure we're in a better place in the future. Had you been done, doing any of it before? No, no. Okay. I mean, we, uh, Give us a call, Paul. We've got lots of experience in that area. Excellent, Phil. I will. Please. That is good. And uh, how long, Phil, how long have you been doing affordable housing out there? Well, it's been decades, uh, 50 years of affordable housing. We have uh, 30 properties, 1,700 units, and 3,500 
residents uh, that we serve on an annual basis. So uh, I think, Paul, you hit on it. We talked about housing at the beginning. We talked about where and what those costs are doing and what percentage of income that rents are absorbing. And that is something that is going to continue to proliferate and create additional challenges for our community here. So I think it's it's well said in that regard. And, and I would just tag to that, that going back to our conversation, community and people being involved with one another and not interacting in a two-dimensional world, I think is absolutely critical to the mental and uh, well-being of, of all, both our employees and our uh, clients. So I think that's a, another key point that we have to focus on. So let me, let me ask you, any generational issues with regard to how different generations of workers view what you just said? Yeah, you know, it's a good question, Monsignor. The, the, you know, I don't, I, I wonder why we ended up with the generations at the end of the alphabet, but <laughs> I think that, you know, as, as a rule. Because uh, um, the ABCs were all taken. I guess. I guess. <laughs> we, we as a, we as a, a, you know, generational, we, we looked at boots on the ground at all times, you know, uh, growing up in New York, my dad was out working seven days a week. Um, there was no other opportunity but to go out there and do that. And with the way in which we as a society operate today, we have become more insular. And I think that that's something that the younger generation is more comfortable with. Um, and it's something I think we have to remind ourselves as human beings that um, we do need that third dimension and we do need that interaction. So I think that there's, there's, there's positives to every <laughs> element, but uh, we as human beings are three dimensional. Okay. Randy, as you look forward, what are you focusing on? Big thing we're focusing on is mental health. Ninety okay. percent um, of the population we serve down here that's facing homelessness battles some sort of mental health illness. But then it also goes into our food pantry part of our programs as well as you're seeing a lot of individuals with um, mental health needs, uh, and so really focusing on that mental health piece of it. We know obviously housing is is a huge one. Um, we've never done housing or mental health. And so we're looking to bring in mental health providers in our day center where we can start uh, maybe helping and reaching some of the clients that are sleeping out on the street. Great. So thank you all, Paul, uh, Randy, Phil, thank you so much. And uh, Paul and Randy, your accents weren't too bad. <laughs> we could, thank Phil you. and I could figure it out. So um, anyway, uh, thank you so much, Paul uh, Propson, CEO of Catholic Charities of Southeast Michigan, Randy Chappelle, Basic Needs Director of Catholic Community Services of Utah, and Paul Botiero of the great city of Yonkers, now the Chief <laughs> Financial Officer of Catholic Charities of Denver. Thanks so much for joining us on Just Love. Hope Thank to talk you. to you soon. Thank, Thank you. you. Just love. Have a great weekend. God just bless. love. Just love God. Just love your neighbor. Just love yourself. And our world will be more just and it will be more compassionate. Join us when we come back in just a moment on the Catholic Channel, Sirius XM 129.
called Let's Get Back to Just Love. And your host, Monsignor Kevin Sullivan. I'm going where the sun keeps shining Through the pouring rain Going where the weather suits my clothes Banking off of the northeast winds Sailing on the summer breeze Skipping over the ocean like a song Welcome back to Just Rock. I'm Monsignor Kevin Sullivan. This is our weekly conversation about the church in the world. We look at what's going on through the prism of our Catholic social values, our wisdom over the uh, years, and we try to see what they tell us about the, uh, the world we're living in. How do we make our world more just and more compassionate? So today, we're again going to raise questions of solidarity across the world. We're going to be speaking about the situation in uh, the Ukraine, the aggressive uh, war of Russia in the Ukraine. And I'm delighted that we have as our guest, Professor John M. Owen IV, who is the Ambassador Henry J. and Mrs. Marion R. Taylor, Professor of Politics at the University of Virginia. Professor Owen, thank you so much for taking the time to be with us on Just Love. My pleasure to be with you. Thanks for having me. Great. So um, just give all this as a brief overview. Um, you know, I know you, you've hung out with, with some of those educational institutions in the Northeast, Princeton, Harvard. How'd you wind up at University of Virginia? <laughs> well, you know, I come originally from North Carolina. Okay. It's almost returning home. All right. But uh, my wife's Canadian, so it's it's quite complicated. She, <laughs> we, we, were in, we were in New England, and she really liked it up there. She liked, she even liked the weather. Um, but uh, a, a call came from Virginia, UVA, and it was really hard hard to resist. And not not so much because of my roots, but it's near Washington, D.C. It's a big right. research university, lot, lots to offer. So we've been here for uh, I don't know, 25 years and, and love it. Oh, great. Um, you know, I I did have the opportunity over the years, just a brief visit to um, Charlottesville, right? Charlottesville, correct. Yeah, Charlottesville. And uh, it just is a very wonderfully majestic looking university. It really is a very, very good looking place. And, and actually, um, I know a number of graduates from there who speak so very highly of their experience there. So good for you that you're the professor there. The, the, the title of the, the chair is longer than probably even some of you lectures, but. <laughs> That's <you>. right. Well, <laughs> I'm not sure about that, but yeah. That's a long <laughs> <Okay. one. laughs> so, um, so let's just talk a little bit about, you know, I mean, this is a general question, but um you know, everybody as, as a as a layperson in this sphere say, what was Russia thinking? What was going on in, you know, is this just brute? What? So tell us a little bit your take on how we should kind of frame Russia's invasion of the Ukraine. Yeah, great and very important question. You know, Russia has been, let's say, interested in Ukraine for years, interested, first of all, because it was they were part of the Soviet Union together, and 
Russia really, uh, in the early 90s, even then under Boris Yeltsin, wasn't crazy about the idea of Ukraine becoming a separate republic. And ever, ever since then, there have been people in Russia, important people who regard Ukraine as a part of Russia, and it's going to have to return to the fold someday. Um, Russia was starting to lose Ukraine in the, in the sense that it, it never really had Western Ukraine. There, there's an kind of ethnic religious divide between the Western, you know, Uniat in communion right. with Rome and the Eastern, which is mostly Orthodox and a lot of Russian speakers in the East. So Russia was always worried about, about that. But even in the, toward the East, public opinion was starting to turn a bit against Russia because partly because Russia seized Crimea, which was legally part of Ukraine eight years ago and um, began to stir up a little Ukrainian patriotism. Um, so I think, I think what happened was Vladimir Putin had reason to think he could easily take Ukraine earlier this year. He had a lot of money in the bank, lots of revenues coming in to Russia from his oil and gas exports. And that encouraged him to make a move. He also had reformed the Russian military so that he thought it was in fighting trim and ready to go. And, you know, he wasn't alone. Our own military intelligence thought that Russia could take Ukraine in a matter of weeks, thought it could take Kiev, the capital city, in maybe 24 hours. All that was wrong. So part of what was going on is uh, Putin and the other leaders of Russia misjudged their own military prowess. And they misjudged, they underestimated Ukrainian patriotism and military prowess. So they've been surprised, deeply surprised, as we all have, actually. I certainly have. And uh, they've decided, the Russians have decided to double down so far instead of cut their losses or or try to sort out some kind of a uh, settlement. And so, again, maybe there's no answer to this, but... What did everybody get wrong about the strength of the Russian military and, on the other hand, the weakness of the Ukrainian ability to defend itself? Well, there's a bit of mystery there, but the Russian um, rebuilding of their army was done by some cronies of Vladimir Putin. And I'm one of those people who suspect there's just been a lot of corruption, a lot of a lot of people on the take so that money resources that were supposed to go to tanks and aircraft. And frankly, the training officers, logistics uh, was siphoned off. Uh, and some, some guys are enjoying that money now or, or have been up to now. Uh, and the poor, you know, I do, uh, my sympathies are very much with Ukraine, of course, but I do feel for some of these Russian troops, they didn't know what they were getting into. They've been lied to. They're still being lied to. Um, so part of that, I, a part of the story I think is corruption. Part of it is the Russian um, system of command is very hierarchical. The, 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 the troops in the field don't have a lot of decision-making autonomy. They have to refer, they have to ask upstairs, what, what do I do in this situation? Ukraine, on the other hand, has been trained for at least a decade by our military and other NATO militaries, and they're much more decentralized. They give a lot of decision-making autonomy to the commanders in the field. They don't have to ask the Pentagon, what do I do? We're being fired on, right? Yeah. So that method, which is much more suited to the 21st century with all the information environment we have, is is what Ukraine's using. It's just much better in 21st century warfare. So I think it's a combination of things that have really set Russia on the back foot. You know, Professor Owen, I, I was <laughs> I was driving yesterday for a little while in the car, which means you get to listen to a lot of these talk shows on the radio. And what you just said about the Russian military 
was a conversation I heard, which I'll share now and see if I heard it correctly. There was a report that um, that probably 12 generals were have been killed in this. And the first kind of conversation was, well, we targeted or, or Ukraine targeted the generals. But then as you listened a little bit more, it was that the generals couldn't stay in, quote unquote, Moscow because they had to get to the field because the people in the field didn't know what to do unless there was somebody there to tell them. So they deployed a lot of generals to the control centers where the fighting was going and that American or United States intelligence had given information to the Ukrainians about where those control centers were. So it wasn't so much that the generals were being targeted, the control centers were being targeted, but that's where the generals were. It, right. it just was kind of a, a fascinating, you know, me listening to this discussion. Yeah, it's true. And, and here again, I, I'm one of those people who did not anticipate this dynamic at all. I'll, I should add one more thing, and this is an obvious point, but U.S. and NATO support for Ukraine has been crucial. And I mean, in particular, munitions. Now it's artillery shells, uh, lots of hardware um, going into Ukraine. And we're supplying them with precision guided munitions. The Russians are running out of their precision guided. They're having to use more old fashioned munitions. And some and I don't know how, how long we can do this, but we have a huge supply and we can make more. Russia, on the other hand, is under severe economic sanctions. They are unable to import some of the components they would need to make more precision-guided munitions. So I am starting to think that, uh, I can't believe I'm saying this, that, that Ukraine might outlast Russia, partly because of their own patriotism and prowess, but also because of the supplying that NATO is doing. You know, today we're hearing, yesterday, today, Ukraine's going on the offensive in Kharkiv, this big city in the Northeast. Uh, here again, big surprise for Russia. They, they did not think this was going to happen. Yeah, and, um, you know, it, it, it certainly, and again, it seems from what you read, is that, at least for the time being, Russia, at least for the time being, has given up in trying to take over the central and the western parts and are focusing their efforts on on the on the eastern part of ukraine is that your reading of what's going on it is it is i i don't we have to be careful here i I think it's a tactical adjustment right i i think uh the russians would still like to take over the whole country but they have they've had such setbacks that they're having to just consolidate Donetsk and Luhansk in the east and try to hold on to city. You know, they're fighting um, very hard for Mariupol. It looks like they're finally going to take Mariupol completely. This steel factory is it's just about done. Um, but, I, you know, once if they do consolidate their positions, then I don't think they're done. I think they're going to maybe sit on this for a while, um, follow the Russian playbook, which is what we call a frozen conflict. Uh, Right. Kind of stop and let people get used to the situation Let and let Ukraine weaken and then go on the offensive again. But as I said a minute ago, Ukraine's not passively letting that happen. They are going on the offensive in some places like uh, Kharkiv. So what do you see long term? Well, I am one of those people who has been seeing a long war of attrition between these two because neither... Well, 
neither is ready to compromise. And I, I, they're, they're, to put it one way, their preferences do not overlap at all, right? Uh, Ukraine is not willing to give up an inch of territory. They want Crimea back for that matter. Um, Russia seems to want the whole country and you just can't, there's not, not a lot of compromise available. So the, the, the sad part is it, history shows that in these situations, the war just has to go on. Um, they have to grind it out or some, some unanticipated change has to happen. Like somebody gets overthrown or killed one of the Putin or, or Zelensky. Um, so there are a lot of rumors about Putin being ill. I don't know if I believe those. Uh, the Russians would, I think they would love to kill Zelensky. They just haven't been able to. So, you know, it looks like it's going to go on for a while. But that, that said, let me bring it back to what I said a minute ago. If, you know, if, if it's true that we can keep supplying Ukraine with precision guided munitions and Russia's running out and can't replace its own, Ukraine actually could end up with the better, I, I won't say winning, you know, Ukraine's not going to march into Russia and take over Russia, but could succeed in, in uh, hurting Russia so much that Russia decides, you know, we've, we've had it. Can we at least hold on to, to Crimea? Um, and uh, then there could ensue uh, negotiations, or it could simply be what we call a frozen conflict, where there's no treaty. It's just they stop fighting for a while. So, I mean, certainly in terms of media and, and uh, you know, general mainstream Western opinion, it seems Zelensky is getting rave reviews. Oh, yeah. Yeah, he is. I, I do. I, I think he has uh, he's been compared to Churchill a, a great deal with, with with reason. He's in a little bit different situation than Churchill because his country really has been invaded right. uh, and he's more he's more desperate and he doesn't have, um, you know, he, he's already heard definitive, definitively from NATO that we're, we're not getting directly involved, whereas Churchill held out the hope that was eventually came true that the United States would get involved. So Zelensky's situation is a little different. He's been a little more, I would say, a little bit testy with some of the NATO allies, especially Germany. He He's not above scolding us if he doesn't think we're doing enough. But you know, his people are inspired by this. He is speaking, I think, for the great majority of Ukrainians. He has a gift for the, the you know, the killer line, right? Like right. starting with I need ammunition, not a ride. When he, when right. we, when we offered to get him out of there, he did. He doesn't want that. I, I can just imagine the galvanizing effect that would have on the yeah. Ukrainian population. Yeah. Um, I, I saw. I tell you, I don't know if you have these in New York. I saw a bumper sticker the other day in Charlottesville said Zelensky 2024. I so, did not <laughs> see that, but that is that is a good bumper sticker. I yeah. I like. But you know, you know, again, I I I think you're you're right in terms of, you know, NATO not getting directly involved. The one thing I would say, though, is, and maybe correct me or, or your perspective, yeah. it seemed early on that there was a lot of talk by our own United States administration, humanitarian aid, support, stuff like that. But it certainly seems to me in the last two or three weeks, there's been a lot more willingness to military aid and weapons and things like that. I've, I've sensed a little bit of a shift. Have a, am I correct? I think I, I have too. I think you're right. 
Um, and, and also our defense secretary, Lloyd, Lloyd Austin, said explicitly whether this was wise or not to say this, right. I'm not sure. But he said our goal is now to weaken Russia so that Russia can't do this again. Right. Uh, earlier, it was, no, we're just trying to get Russia out of Ukraine. So I, I still don't think we are looking for a, a shooting war with Russia. That brings right. all kinds of bad. You know, they have forty five hundred nuclear warheads. But right. but we're more we're more committed. That's right. Okay. Professor Owen, thank you so much for being with us on Just Love. Thanks for your time. Thanks for your work. My pleasure, Monsignor. Thanks very much. We'll take a break, Tom. This is Just Love on the Catholic Channel, Sirius XM 129. Just do it. Just love. Just check out Monsignor Kevin Sullivan, who's here right now. Take it away, Monsignor. Welcome back to Just Love. Just do it. Just love God. Just love your neighbor. Just love yourself. And our world will be more just and it will be more compassionate. We have talked about this um, in this show. Some of what's going on in Catholic charities throughout the nation, the middle of the country in Michigan, a little bit further west in kind of the mountain states, 
Utah and um, Colorado. And then we spoke about the situation in Ukraine. One of the things that I think is worth a little bit reflecting on when we talk about um, just uh, when we talk about the Catholic Church and our interest in the world, the Second Vatican Council probably captured it as well as anybody when it says there's nothing that was is outside of the scope of the followers and the beliefs of Jesus, the hopes and joys, the sorrows and the griefs. Because we believe that the entire human person is made in the image and likeness of God. And therefore, anything that affects our person, whether it be individually or as a society, the order of our our society, all of that is important. That's why we really, really care about the issues of life. We know how divisive those are uh, in our world and but as we kind of defend human life, it's a very important value that we put put forth. And I do think as Catholics, as Christians, we need to make sure that we express our voice and we need to be pretty firm in what we say. But at the same time, that means we have to do it in a way which is very respectful. It is very civil. I think that's going to be tested tremendously in light of the leaked draft document of the Supreme Court. I have heard conversations that I have found pretty disturbing by people in the media, which just were very, very kind of denigrating of people at a different positions and uh, whatever our Whatever, whenever anybody expresses an opinion, I think we need to be very, very careful to make sure that we are clear in our beliefs, clear in our values, but that the approach and the tactic that we take is not to destroy the importance and the value of our positions and our beliefs by the way that we express them, because that can create a tremendous amount of of unfortunate blowback, which is doesn't help the furthering and the protection of of life, the dignity of the human person, the sanctity of life at all stages of its existence. This is going to be a difficult time. And I do think we have a very, very valuable role in speaking in society, but in a way that doesn't further the divisiveness, but instead rather increases the ability for us to speak to one another. Not easy. I'm not naive. I listen to some of the conversations and the dialogue is almost impossible. But we do have a responsibility to try to be uh, people who can, uh, can further that dialogue and further it as um, as people who bring people together. Thank you for being with us on Just Love. Just love God, just love your neighbor, just love yourself. And our world will be more just and it will be more compassionate. Join us when we come back next week on the Catholic Channel, Sirius XM 129. You're listening to the Catholic Channel, Sirius XM 129. 